0: everyone i'm betsy and i'm greg and we want to invite you to check out our podcast going on 30 each month betsy and i take a look back at a movie that was released 30 years ago that was either nominated or should have been nominated for best picture
1: we talk about the legacy of the film choose the best scenes and performances and explore our own hot takes about the movie
0: And we discussed the greatness of Tom Cruise, an actor who has graced our screens for multiple decades taking on some of the most artistically challenging pursuits while displaying what can only be described as an everyman relatability. An actor, nay, a thespian who pushes the boundaries of what the medium is capable of while revealing the humanity that's underlying... right, I'm done. I cannot cannot tolerate this anymore. So listen to Going on 30 every month right here on the popping college speed wherever you get your podcast. I love you Tom. Oh jeez. Hello, everyone. My name is Greg Knight, and I like watching, thinking about, and talking about movies. One of the great things about starting your own podcast is that there are some days where you actually get to talk to the creators of those movies. This is one of those days. This month, I got the chance to talk to Paul Michael Angel, the director of a new documentary called Medicine Man, the Stan Brock story. Joining him was Chris Hall, the chief operating officer of Remote Area Medical. Letterboxd.com will tell you that Medicine Man is a documentary adventure recounting the incredible life story of British-born Amazonian cowboy-turned-US TV star Stan Brock, who sacrificed everything to bring healthcare to people in need at once a heartwarming tribute to the unifying power of volunteerism and an exploration of a perennial outsider's search for meaning through giving of himself. This film is a challenging and inspirational tale of an unlikely man on an improbable and unwavering mission to resolve one of the biggest social issues of our time, the U.S. healthcare crisis." What I'll tell you is that I didn't really know much about Stan Brock outside of some Mutual of Omaha clips from the internet, and I came away from this movie really inspired by this portrait of a servant's heart. So what happens when a documentary filmmaker and a nonprofit staffer meet a barefoot cowboy on a crusade to bring people medical care wherever they may be? Find out, as I keep things under the stool with Paul Michael Angel and Chris Hall. But before we chat, here's a trailer for the film.
2: It was all part of creating remote area medical. And, um, it's worked. Such is the life of Stan Brock, a remarkable man. Part cowboy, part naturalist, part lots of other things. It was great being a cowboy.
1: It was here that I had an unforgettable adventure. and It was also here that I met Stan Brock, ranch manager.
2: It was great to host the Wild Kingdom uh, television series. I made several movies. None of that really means a hill of beans compared with what over 92,000 volunteers are doing here in America. Hundreds of people are camping out tonight to get
1: free health care. People have been waiting all the way since yesterday, parking in fact. But if you needed to be motivated, walk out to the parking lot and see what a thousand people with toothaches look like.
3: I'm here because we lost our business. And because of that, we basically lost everything.
2: Who's got number one? There go. They'll take the numbers of the day. For Number two.
0: Stan likes to say that he took a vow of
2: poverty. There are no hobbies, there are no vacations. There is nothing in his life except remote area medical.
0: I had to pray (laughs) because I had no money. I didn't have nothing. I I was just tapped out. We've been able
2: to run this organization on a shoestring. Volunteers that are willing to pay their own way.
3: We don't know why he does this,
2: why he works so hard and so diligently. Stan, somehow or other, inspired us to give up two weekends a month.
0: Honey, you're a giver,
2: and I, I appreciate that. Welcome to America and the healthcare uh, situation.
0: Stan spent the first part of his life only working with animals, and he didn't seem to care very much for the human race. And there's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't want to. A lot of times people are mean and callous. I want to personally say thank
3: you for seeing us as human beings.
0: You know, no matter what they do, they deserve to be pain-free.
2: I don't get into the political issues of, uh, of either party. I know people on both sides of the aisle, so to speak. That there's 50 million people out there that are not getting the care that they need. They simply can't afford it. And we need to do something about it.
0: Um, So I always like to start these conversations in the same way, which is kind of figuring out how did you get here and a little bit of what your story is. So, uh, Paul, can I just start with you? How did you decide that you wanted to be a filmmaker? Where did this all start for you, this uh, this desire to make art?
3: Well, I looked at uh, drama filmmaking and thought, well, that looks far too creative. I'll just have to be a documentary filmmaker. And uh, but then, disappointingly, I discovered there's a lot of creativity still required to make a documentary film. So here I am working with the limited tools that I have. Um, I think in truth that I kind of enjoy being around people and getting their story, which is a bit of a cheesy thing to say um but i yeah i really genuinely do enjoy hearing people tell me what's going on in their lives and i think that kind of comes naturally to me i I think i think there was a period of my life where i was like traveling the world a lot and meeting a lot of people and i did find that people were quite quick to kind of unburden themselves or 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 speak to me so maybe i am a receptive ear I, i hope so
0: yeah. Uh, was there was there a moment where you were like, you know what, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be a documentary filmmaker. Was there like a. Yeah, there was actually when I got my first
3: taste of working in documentary film, it was with a really great um, independent producer director called Victor Bueller, And I was effectively kind of his understudy in some ways, if he would allow me to say that. Um, and immediately, like, I mean, I think I got my first ever job as a production assistant. And Victor was there and he was like, oh, I like your style. Let's let's meet up after this. Let's work together a bit. And I ended up doing sound and assisting and translating for him and and, then camera operating. But the the point is the very first job working with Victor, I thought, yeah, this is if I can make a living out of this. Just it, it doesn't have to be a lot of money. But if I can just pay the bills through doing this job, I know I won't have to drag myself out of bed and into the office every day. I know I'll be personally motivated to do it. Um, so I really went for, from that that point of realizing this could be a job that feels fulfilling, that doesn't feel like a chore, which, yeah. you know, no, <laughs> is awesome.
0: a dream, isn't it? Yeah, right. that's, that's awesome when you can connect that passion to what it is that you do, you know. Um, Chris, uh, yeah, how did you find yourself in remote medical uh you know with this uh with this program like what was it that that got you through the doors and working with this uh organization
1: you know when i was young my father um challenged me to go out and do some volunteer work and so i I went in the early years it was 1997 i went to the first operation um which was expedition 100 for ram and i kind of fell in love with it and and it's shaped my life ever since then i've been involved um and watched ram grow from where it was in '97 to where it is now. And along the way I got to meet Paul and his team and just um had a wonderful time kind of interacting with them and watching them and seeing this film and them being able to tell Stan's story. Yeah. Um because Stan was truly an inspirational person. And it um, you know, he affected a lot of people and he changed a lot of people's lives, whether they were patients, whether they were volunteers or providers. And um, and Paul and his team did an amazing job of capturing that and being able to present that. And I truly think that he'll end up continue changing lives for many years to come, even after his passing.
0: Yeah, I think that that's the thing that really comes across with the documentary is just what a simple sort of mission it is. And it starts from this very small grain and grows into this larger thing. And as the expeditions start to pile up and the numbers start to trip into the triple digits and stuff like that, you really get a sense of how mammoth this operation has become. Paul, this seems like a long time in the making. How long were you following Stan around with this uh, documentary film?
3: I first made contact with Stan in late 2011, and then we first filmed in April 2012. Um, And I think the biggest fear as a documentary filmmaker is that you get into something that just doesn't evolve. It doesn't develop. There's no kind of measurable change. And where we were so lucky with Stan is that things moved on incredibly in the period that we, we filmed. But We weren't necessarily intending to make a kind of time and motion study of one man's life and one man's organisation. But that's effectively what it ends up being. It's like a kind of 10 year look at what happened to the organisation, what happened to Stan, but also what happened for people on the ground in the U S in terms of accessing healthcare, So it is this document that shows you all those things. Um, unfortunately there was tons of change that happened. And then when we dug into Stan's personal life, we realized that he had evolved quite a lot as a person. There was also kind of measurable change there. I mean, he, he basically starts off in this film as a kind of rugged, macho cowboy character, um, because Kind of due to the circumstances that he is in, that is the best way to survive. And as his circumstances change, he is also able to change with them and becomes really like the ultimate caring humanitarian. Um, And I say ultimate because he took a, a vow of poverty and said that for the rest of my life, this is what I'm going to do and i'm not going to take a salary i'm not going to worry about material things i'm just going to focus all my efforts on this um so like there is this lesson that comes out of the film that you can evolve as a person even in middle age um and maybe you know that's something that i can connect with now
0: Yeah. And it was it was interesting too seeing the old Mutual of Omaha clips, which are gorgeous to look at in retrospect, you know, just watching him on the horse and like his posture and stuff. It's just amazing to see. Um, But uh, yeah, this idea that maybe there's even a sense of regret that comes with his early life of like, there's got to be more than just this, you know, that kind of pivotal moment where you're like, What does my life amount to? And that's where those real catalysts, like those real sort of decision moments, can happen in midlife. You know,
3: I think that the film sort of proves that one person can make a difference um, if they have a purpose and are empowered to do that. Yeah. And um, Stan actually manages to more than just like get his own mission going. He manages to like be a unif- unifying force that brings people together around him to achieve the aim. So mm-hmm. it's both a message about what one individual can achieve, but also about, um, you know, what, the, what, what a team can achieve when they get together, driven by essentially one individual. But it is like a whole team that he manages to assemble. And that, that's what lives on uh, beyond him.
0: Yeah. And the amazing circumstance, you know, because he's not... He's, he's such a sort of thoughtful and sort of shy, quiet guy that the fact that a team even formed around him, Chris, I imagine you can speak to this. Like the fact that something even grew from this is pretty amazing considering that, you know, I think there's a quote in the movie, like Stan didn't know how to ask for help, didn't know how to ask for money, you know, all of that stuff. Um, When did you uh, start to see sort of uh, remote area really start to grow beyond um, those initial sort of schoolhouse stages?
1: You know, right when Paul started in 2012, 2012 to 2013 was kind of our first really big launch. And then 2013 to 2014, um, the need kept growing. Um, the requests to come in for these clinics um, were coming in from all over the country. And and Stan was really a kind of a driving force to get the providers to the areas to provide that care. And and as Paul says, and as the documentary shows, Stan, Stan was able to present an opportunity and he didn't ask like how we're going to do it. He just said, we're going to do this. We're going to do a clinic in Parup, Nevada, um, a town that I'd never even heard of prior to that. And, you know, the team pulled together and the groups Stan influenced each person and, and found that passion because it truly each person can make a huge difference in people's lives and can influence others. Yeah. And that's what Stan did. He 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 found an inner team. He influenced them. And then they continued to influence the providers, the volunteers. And today, I mean, we've had over 100,000 volunteers volunteer their services because of one man, because Stan had a passion to help others. And um, he made it his life goal with that vow of poverty to dedicate every moment he had to bring care to people that needed it.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, if you think about it and Paul, you alluded to this already, you know, what a what a 10 years to really start to make it this this documentary. Um, So the Affordable Care Act is frequently mentioned in this movie was that one of the things that was in the back of your mind when you started this project paul this idea of okay so let's see you know how committed america is to this idea of healthcare for as many people as possible and i'm going to follow stan as he's as he's sort of taken on this mission
3: yes i think we did want to stress
0: test the ideas behind
3: um the aca because yeah it it did come in just
0: before we started, pretty much during that first shoot. It was 2012, mm-hmm. I think. It was like right in the middle of the first Obama administration, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so
3: like yeah, and the film does end up, because it it, it is a very um, objective look at what's happening on the ground, it does end up pointing out a couple of flaws in um, the approach, mm-hmm. um, mainly to do with... Um, you know, co-payments still being really high despite the ACA, and some states basically opting not to fully, ex- not to fully extend the ACA, kind to have kind of ACA light in some way, which wasn't very effective, uh, from what we can see. Um, you know, but we knew that people were quite fatigued with the politics of the issue, mm-hmm. much like Stan himself we always felt that the best way to tell this story would be apolitical um and really we just want to hammer home the point that healthcare as an issue really transcends the traditional left-right look at politics it's a bigger issue than that and there's no need to kind of get caught up in that really you know we just want to improve healthcare access across the us because it's clearly still not in in great shape you know it's still i don't think we've moved very far from that first shoot in april 2012 to you know april 2023 that that's that i don't think um the numbers of people who don't have access to a doctor have changed much they're pretty much the same so yeah yeah it was in our mind and but we you know what i remember that very first shoot and I rem- uh, we were talking to people and i remember saying to the crew don't say to people what do you think of obamacare because immediately you're into this language of like oh the left side the right republican the democrat it's like like, let's just keep it like much more broad and neutral about like what do you think about better health care access or what do you think of the idea of getting health care for free at the point of delivery brackets even though you might have paid for it in your taxes (laughs) um So, yeah, that was that was it was important kind of to follow Stan's ethos on being non-partisan.
0: Yeah. And that's fascinating, right? Because the politics always want to kind of drag themselves back into it. And, you know, the having so I've had the benefit. It was so fascinating following your expeditions around because I worked in St. Louis for three years and had access to work in East St. Louis. And I've um, I've actually volunteered in Wise County in St. Paul, Virginia, a few times and stuff like that. And worked with the coal coal folks up there. And um, and so it was fun, like sort of following you guys around and seeing these communities that I've, that I've come to sort of know. And I know that they're good people that sometimes you know, when the politics of things start to come in, you realize that they're of two minds, you know? It's this idea of like, you know, this sort of staunch conservatism that they've kind of grown up with, but also this real need for what it is that Stan's providing. And, you know, they're trying to figure out how to mash these two things together. I'm just curious, Paul, as a filmmaker, were you ever tempted to follow, did you ever get into one person's story enough someone who was receiving treatment that you were tempted to maybe follow and track, you know, how they received care, what their post-care was like, anything like that. Or were you just solely focused on Stan's story and just keeping with, with Ram the whole time? In in the
3: initial development
0: of the concept, we as a team
3: definitely considered looking at patient stories m- in much more depth, but I think what really ha- and, and by the way, this film was meant to be the ultimate straight out of film school, observational, no intervention, right. just a window on a wall. Yeah, all those film school notions just went like straight out the window. Um, when we realized the richness of Stan's story. So, you know, we do that first interview with Stan in the old schoolhouse. I don't even know if it's visible. Oh, no, it is. Yeah, it's still busy. You see shots of that interview still in the movie. They're not covered over. And um, sorry, what were we, I've lost the train of thought a little bit about the... Um,
0: uh, I was just asking if you were ever tempted to follow uh, patient yeah. stories and stuff. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. So
3: we kind of broke out of the dogma of like, oh, let's just make an observational film because right. you look at Stan's story and you're like, what an incredible story. How can you possibly tell that story if only, you know, without, how could you tell it without like using archive? If only we had some archive. And then suddenly we discover there's this whole archive of Stan's stuff be it like what he's got in his metal filing cabinets like old VHS tapes or you know all those episodes of wild kingdom or the 1968 BBC documentary that was made about Stan that was in two parts and then you start to think oh wow like we should just keep the focus like really singular here and just stay with Stan's story and try to like tell everything like through Stan so it's usually a patient that like Stan meets or Stan encounters that we'll kind of touch upon. But we always just try to come back to Stan. And that was, you know, that was only possible because of the richness of all that footage that, that you mentioned going back to uh, 1968. Although there's some footage of Guyana, which is 1956. But, you know, he's not in the footage. We weren't right. that But there's some truly great, like 20th century uh, footage in this movie that I hope people will enjoy.
0: Yeah. I mean, some of the some of the old shots of him, it it looks like Rock Hudson or something. He's just this like, you know, all American sort of looking guy. And, you know, obviously he's not American or like in that situation. But it's just it's just amazing, you know, seeing this chiseled jaw uh, cowboy uh, running around. Yeah. Yeah.
3: He's perfect for like writing pitch lines because all the lines would come up with. be like part James Bond, part Crocodile Dundee. (laughs) The, like, what is he? He's like everything, but we turned it down in the end. The way we pitched it, I think we got from something like British-born Amazonian cowboy uh, turned U.S. wildlife TV star who decides to give it all up to bring free care to the people of America. Um, it, it was just a wild story, like straight out of one of those like boys' own magazines from like the 60s and 50s and 60s um yeah so we already wanted to capture some of that essence of him
0: yeah one of the intriguing things that i was thinking of as the film was wrapping up was this idea of growth and moving from the schoolhouse to the new facility the new ram headquarters and everything just looks so much cleaner and more modern and you know all of these you know souped up offices and stuff like that um you, you know chris i'm wondering you know as as you hit these threshold moments and you expand and expand, I know that it makes reference to the 60 minutes interview and getting more donations from that and the ability to expand. Um, Do you find yourself in a situation now where you're comfortable with the number of volunteers? Because this must be a mammoth operation and you need as many doctors and dentists and you know, uh, eye care professionals as possible to work with these people. So, you know, do do you have enough of these volunteers to come in and work in these areas? Um, and how does the volunteer process kind of work?
1: Yeah, so so the answer to that is no. The The need continues to outpace the, even the growth of the organization. Um, we're at a point now where we're doing close to 100 operations a year, and we're utilizing over 20,000 volunteers each year to provide these services for free. And um, that's one of the things that we're very proud of in the way they told the story of Stan is, is it definitely ends up leaving off of how can I make a difference? How can I make an impact? And, and today you can volunteer. You can actually, they can go to our website at ramusa.org. They can see our clinic schedule where we're going for the next 14 to 16 months. And if they see something that interests them, they can sign up as a volunteer. You have to have no experience um, to come and volunteer. Um, Of our volunteers, about half of them are professionals. So they're dentists, optometrists nurses and so forth. The other half are general support. They're volunteers who have no medical specialty training and we train uh, on, on site for the positions that they can fill. And each person that watches this has an opportunity once this film is over to really see um, lives changed and they can be a huge part of that and influence others. Um, so we're very excited for the the showing of this on November 14th and we're excited that um, that hopefully people will be inspired from this film and And truly, try to make a difference in other people's lives and volunteer with us,
0: so and also one of the things that sort of the and I, I realized that the film kind of has this, you know, this tragic sort of endpoint with Stan's death. um what you just said, Chris, is really important. the legacy that Stan leaves and the inspiration that Stan provides. But with his death in twenty eighteen, That acts as sort of a a stopping point for the story of the film, but we all know that there was a massive healthcare crisis beginning in 2020 and running over the last few years. So how did RAM navigate the COVID pandemic, and what did that look like for you guys on the other side of where this this film kind of leaves off? So
1: coming into the pandemic, after after Stan's passing, um, again, the organization continued to grow. and. Mm When COVID kind of shut down the world in March of 2020, it kind of shut down all of the operations that we had, and we were here at our headquarters with, at that time, around 40 employees and you know 20,000 volunteers that were excited to go volunteer and do these helps. So RAM kind of shifted focus in that time and went in and kind of led the um, flight into COVID testing. We started. We partnered with some large partners and. We managed 17 um, COVID testing sites across 13 different states and tested somewhere in the neighborhood of 180,000 patients um, for COVID testing in the early years. Um, We were partnered with the US Public Health Service to make those things happen. Um, And it was through the connections and the opportunities of the clinics. Um, We did that for about three and a half, four months. And also during that time, we kind of had to revamp all of our clinic processes of how to host clinics in a post-COVID world. And the team came together and, and made some huge changes. The way we deliver dental care looks completely different. Currently, mm-hmm. we're in 10 by 10 operatories that are negative air pressure suites, they're surgical suites. And, um, and we're still doing that to this day. So because of the great volunteers, the great people that we had, um, it gave us the opportunity to pivot, change, and deliver care in a different manner and we continue doing that to this day.
0: Yeah, it, the level of care this is actually probably a question for both of you because you can both probably answer it in different ways. Paul, you can answer it because you were actually there and saw it. You know, so much of the the um presenting cases that come into to these places are tooth pain, vision problems. It's it's sort of, you know, it's it's care that's required, but could be indicative of something else going forward. And, you know, when we were talking about the politics of healthcare, it strikes me that the a lot of the political pushback uh, from some folks is this idea of cost. And I think that that's thinking in terms of surgical care, long-term care, stuff like that. But so often what these folks are presenting with is sort of triage. Like they're looking to just get something taken care of right away. Either that's pulling a tooth or getting a new pair of glasses or something like that. So when when you were there, Paul, was it mostly, was it mostly this idea of, I've got this acute problem, I need it taken care of? Or did you find that there were patients that were coming in um, that really had significant health concerns that would require them for like long-term hospitalization or surgical care or something like that. And they were going to need to be moved to a hospital or something.
3: Yes. To both of those really. Um, so part of Stan's ethos was that dental and vision are actually really important, and they they have been overlooked by the system. And if I'm not wrong, like the ACA does not cover you for dental and vision treatment. So, you know, that that problem still persists. Um, So Stan identified that and it was always clear, uh, really keen to point out to people that these aren't like minor problems. In fact, there can be huge obstacles to you getting out, living a fulfilling life, getting a job and so on. You know, teeth and um, eyes are big issues for you in in your daily life. And as you say, can also be an indicator of health problems so that's like part of the good work but yes um and that is the majority of the work but but yes there are people who come to clinics and they present with really serious problems so in sacramento um i think there's a scene where um a guy comes and he's got testicular cancer but he knows it and he's he told two years ago but he can't even afford but the consultations to find out you know how that's developing right. and it, Dr. John Hendry that says you know this really is like coming to a head now this this uh, cancer issue requires immediate um, treatment and of course remote area medical don't have the resources to be able to do that kind of complex surgery on the spot but you know notably John Hendry says to um, the patient I'm going to make some um, some informal um, inquiries amongst friends who are doctors and we're, I'm going to try and get you. And I believe he did actually get um, treatment, that guy, within months of going to that clinic. So remote area medical definitely go the extra yard and do whatever they can do to help serious um, complaints, um, ish, 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 symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, they, they are ultimately um, limited. And what they can do on a, on a one-day clinic or a, a three-day clinic um, but they always make efforts to further somebody's patient journey to get them nobody kind of walks away mm-hmm. from a remote area medical clinic not having advanced their situation and got some sort of improvement so it's lovely to see even for those serious general medical issues remote area medical can help
0: Yeah, about how many, I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, Chris, but about what percentage of people that come in have sort of long-term health uh, problems that they need to sort of seek treatment for?
1: You know, I don't have the number of how many are there. Um, Typically, the most requested service as people are coming through the door is dental. Dental is about 60% of the requests that people show up with at the front door. Vision is about 30 to 35%. And medical is only about 5%. 5% right. of the people come in and say, I need to see a medical doctor. Um, but the truth is, the other 95% need to see that medical doctor also. If they've not been going to the dentist or not been going to an optometrist, they're not seeing a medical doctor either. So in our process, we actually encourage that patient, once they finish with the dentist, to check out the medical doctor. And now close to 45% of the patients coming through the doors not only see dental or vision, but they'll also see medical when they're coming in
0: sometimes things overlap. And I've recently been watching um, Barry Levinson's uh, show that he put out on Hulu called Dope Sick, which is about the opioid crisis in these communities as well. And this idea of, you know, just sort of treating pain, triaging people's discomfort, and then just sending them back into the workforce rather than actually curing them. It It strikes me that there's an ethical and moral dilemma here right love like there's actual health care which is what stan's kind of advocating for and mm. there's just kind of masking the pain and the you know the treatment as best you can so that you can get as much work out of someone before they are totally useless to a corporation or something like that i i'm just curious paul did you see uh were there these stories from these patients of people saying, well, I, I would want to get this treated, but, you know, I've got a family, I've got to do this job, I've got to, you know, they they just put off treatment um, in order to, uh, to get back to work and get back to their lives?
3: Yes, definitely. Um, so every clinic I went to, I'd reach out to patients prior to going there and get to know them a little bit and we'd be discussing the logistics of like okay i've met you now and i'll be there when it happens next week and let's do an interview and i'd love to go to your house and maybe meet your family and they'd be saying i can't even commit to whether I'm going to be there or not because I've got to carve some time out of work and um, sometimes a remote aerial medical clinic might require you to actually stay out overnight although the clinics now tend to be uh, shorter clinics, so they're not like two to three day clinics there tends to be more one day clinics I think that's right Chris um, so yeah there was always this terrible sense of jeopardy that they might not even be able to attend because this they, they simply can't fit this in to, to their daily lives, their daily lives weren't accommodating. I mean, you you, you generally can't just turn around to, to your boss and say, uh, oh, I'm going to this speculative uh, free healthcare clinic. It would perhaps be different if you were getting treatment through a work insurance policy, and then it would all be organized by the workplace. But as we know, the people turning up to remote area clinics don't have insurance via their employer because many employers in certain industries in the U.S. do not provide anything. So, yeah, just the logistics of attending a clinic can be problematic for people because of the way the world works. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, that's so hard. And to add to
1: that for both of you, you think of these two-day events, these Saturday-Sunday events. Patients will arrive on Friday. So they'll arrive before we even arrive on site to set up the clinic to sleep in their car overnight. So they're looking at logistics of childcare. If they have children, who can watch the children? Mm -hmm. Um, Managing food, maintaining their spot in line, staying comfortable in nights that it's 20 degrees outside and they're sleeping in their car. Um, There's so many challenges and restrictions that they're fighting through just to get some basic care, just to have a tooth fixed or to get an eye exam and a pair of glasses. People sacrifice to get the events, people sacrifice their time to just be able to receive basic services.
0: Thank you for that. I uh, This is such a powerful story, and I'm so glad uh, that you made this uh, documentary, Paul. I'm so glad that, uh, you know, that we have this opportunity to shed a light on a lot of things that, you know, just a lot of Americans just don't think about is happening in their country, which is um, which is really great. I'm about to run out of time and I want to make sure that I get like some really good Stan Brock stories in here towards the end. So Paul, as you were working on this documentary, was there a story that you have of an interaction with Stan that stood out to you that you're like, man, I'm always going to remember that. Uh, that moment with Stan during this doc. Uh,
3: it is hard to choose one moment, but. Uh... This is a very emotional one. Um shortly before Stan passed away, we went we spent some time at a ranch in Tennessee uh, in uh, near Knoxville where Stan loves horses. And he spoke to me about um reflecting on his life and what he had left behind. I thought that was the right time to say that he taught me something about service, about the idea that we're on this planet and we do need to go to work and we do need to, you know, pay the bills and everything. But maybe there's a way to engineer your life, if you like, so that you can do all of that boring stuff, but also do something that is in some way beneficial to the wider world okay you don't have to go full Stan Brock <laughs> you, you you don't have to sell everything you own and devote the rest of your life to it and you know um but I thought if I can continue doing what I do and and make sure that in some way it's like taking society in the right direction just in some tiny shift towards what i think is the right direction then that that's like a, a life much better lived than to not have that kind of service so you know i try to do projects now where i feel like there's some sort of service to the wider world i mean if that's not too grandiose of me um so i told stan that that's what he had given me this understanding of the importance of um, service and he just like nodded
0: and looked satisfied
3: and I thought that that was enough for me the message got through
0: oh that's beautiful I love I love this idea that somewhere inside of us there's this barefoot cowboy that you know can, can do these amazing things you know we just have to let him out sometimes um Chris do you have a stand story
1: yeah I think in the hearing Paul with his is um, one of the last conversations I had with Stan before he was passing is um he he was here at our headquarters and um his health was had turned and it wasn't looking promising. And we had clinics scheduled every weekend from from that time he was talking to me through the end of the year. I don't think we had a weekend off. And um Stan looked at me and said, No matter what happens to me, do not stop doing clinics. Mm-hmm. If if when it's my time to go, do not let a patient not get care. Because I pass, and um, it's one of those things. Kind of the same thing as Paul. It, it resides with me to this day. Is is when we're planning these clinics. Is I don't want to be a person that stands in the way of someone getting care, and and there's so many out there that are like that. So, so um, that piece of stand sticks with me, and and we continue doing these clinics every weekend, um, for that purpose to get the care to the patients.
0: I love it. Uh, I want to give folks a chance to connect with uh, both of your projects that you've got going on. So, Chris, how how can folks find a remote area and volunteer if they'd like to? So, you can
1: visit our website at ramusa.org. Um, follow us on our social media accounts. Um, that will keep you up to date of all the events coming up and where we're going. Um, but at our website, you can volunteer or donate. Um, I just encourage everyone to try to get involved. You can make a difference in someone's life. And um, it's awesome to be a part of that.
0: Awesome. And Paul, where can we find uh, Medicine Man, the Stan Brock story? Yeah, so the best way to access the
3: film and get tickets is to go to Fathom Events, and it's Medicine Man, the Stan Brock story. So if you just Google Fathom Events, Medicine Man, the Stan Brock story, I won't say the URL because it's so incredibly long, but you should find it. And it's got a zip code finder on there that's really handy. You just put in your zip code and see which theaters have got the film near to you. And you can get down there on November the 14th. Um, with as many people as you can. Nice. <laughs>
0: yeah, it just goes straight from the Taylor Swift movie over to the medicine <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I,
3: I am also professionally obligated to point out that the information about what's happened to Remote Area Medical since Stan passed, that's actually a short film that was showing on the night, you know, um, after the main movie. There's a cool update film to show all the great work that oh, Remote awesome. area- in the last five years in in more in some detail so yeah if you want to know more about that that's also part of the screening night
0: fantastic congratulations to you guys on this project a uh, really great documentary i'm so glad i'm watching it. i'm so glad i got a chance to talk to you thank, thank you so much for doing this pleasure
3: thank you thank you